from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, April 18th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. More ceasefire violations today in Syria as the U.S. slams the Assad regime's insincerity. Also, a new video that urges President Assad's wife, Asma, to do something to end the violence. One day, our children will ask us what we have done to stop this bloodshed. What will your answer be, Asma? Plus, demonstrators block a street in Tunisia to read, and the King of Spain apologizes for his secret hunting expedition. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The U.S. today slammed Syria's government for continuing to violate the U.N.-backed ceasefire in Syria. A White House spokesman says it's another indication of the regime's insincerity. United Nations observers are in the country to monitor that ceasefire, and today they got a taste of the violence. The observers were surrounded by anti-government protesters in Damascus when gunfire rang out. No casualties were reported in the incident. It's a different story, though, in homes. Government forces there again shelled parts of the city in a blatant violation of the ceasefire. We spoke earlier today with an activist in homes who calls himself Abu Al-Layth. No, the resistance uh, they are holding with the ceasefire as an unplanned, but the problem is the Assad uh, regime start to just invade homes. The other areas, it's not under his uh, jurisdiction. So is what we're hearing there both... regime forces outside. And is this both defensive fire and offensive fire uh, coming from the government and the opposition? That's what we're hearing. Yes. How close is it to you? It's about uh, 500 meters. And has this been going on pretty much day and night? How long long has it been that close? Yes. The shooting is about 24-7. For how long? The shooting. It's uh, the last four months. months. But the shelling, from about uh, two months ago, the shelling, it started with about 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning till about 1800. Are you you able to leave your home at all? No. Because there is a sniper all over the high towers in homes. They will just snipe anything moves. So how are you, and I don't know if you have a family or not, but I wonder how you're getting provisions. Uh, I don't have any contact with my family. I'm in an isolated area. So we, we cannot just uh, be in contact with other parts of the of homes. Do you have a weapon yourself? Just to defense myself, yes. Have you had to use it? No, not yet, but... Just uh, to scare the army. They, they were shooting me. I tried to just to get out from 
my last position. You mean when you were outside? Yes. Yeah. What is the weapon? Uh, AK-47. AK-47. Um, how long are you going to be able to stay where you are right now? It sounds like you're not able to get around or move around, or can you collect food, water anywhere? Oh, they just... Uh, Surround us, and they wait to be for us to be too much weak. After that, they will enforce us and kill us all. I just wonder if you identify yourself as a fighter or a civilian, or perhaps these days both. No, I'm I'm just activist. You can say I'm not fighters with the Free Syrian Army. I have my my rifle just to defend myself from any. Anybody try to kill me. As I'm telling you, we just now trust with the community, the world community, the Security Council, to just uh, enforce the, uh, the regime to apply all unarmed land. You're saying that you would look for the international community to use force to push back the Syrian military? Yes, to use any mean in Brussels. Since the international community has not been using force... What is your aim? Is your aim simply to stay where you are, to stay alive? We will try to fight back. We will try to stay alive, but we will fight because the regime will enforce us to fight. Because now we will try to just enforce our areas. So we will fight and fight back until somebody wins in the, in the end. Is Is anyone who is wounded getting medical assistance, proper medical assistance? Actually, we have some field hospitals, but it's too bad because we don't have medical uh, supplies. We don't have blood bags. We don't have IV bags. We don't have anything. We don't have surgery equipment to do surgeries. Uh, it's, it's, it's miserable. The, the, the field hospital is miserable. We, sometimes we, we try to cut arm or or leg because of the shelling without any anesthesia. Have you been wounded yourself? No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, not yet. It's hard to believe that with all of this going on around you, um, that you haven't thought about your own mortality. Actually, uh, after the shelling today, because it was too much violence, and it was very hard on us, and we have too much killing and wounded going on, I think we don't have much time before all of us, or in my sector, I'm talking about my sector here, the people in this sector, they will die very soon, I think. We just send our message to the whole community. If they don't care, so it will be the end. Thank you for speaking with us, and um, and we hope Welcome, you stay ma'am. safe. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. That was an activist in Homs. He calls himself Abu al-Layth. Syria's first lady, Asma al-Assad, has stood by her husband throughout the 13-month uprising, this despite the escalating death toll, now estimated to exceed 9,000 people. Today, an effort led by the wives of UN ambassadors from Britain and Germany is demanding that Asma take a stand against her husband's regime. It comes in the form of a video that alternates stylish photos of Asma al-Assad with gruesome pictures of dead and injured Syrian children. The world's Aaron Schachter reports. 
From glamour queen to sanctioned wife of an increasingly brutal dictator, Asma al-Assad's fall from grace has been precipitous. A little over a year ago, she was glowingly profiled in Vogue magazine and giving speeches about justice. We all deserve the same thing. We should all be able to live in peace, stability, and with our dignities. But then her husband launched a violent crackdown on pro-democracy protests. And someone leaked emails that appeared to show Asma in the midst of an online shopping binge, spending tens of thousands on candlesticks, designer shoes, and chandeliers from Paris, and swapping jokey YouTube videos with her husband. Those emails were the last straw for critics. The European Union added Asma to a sanctions list to prevent her from traveling or shopping in Europe. And now, a video appealing to al-Assad opponents worldwide. This is a letter to Asma al-Assad, signed by women all over the world. The video, posted on YouTube, includes gruesome images of death and destruction and a plea to Asma to break from her husband. One day, our children will ask us what we have done to stop this bloodshed. What will your answer be, Asma? We think she can speak out openly, publicly, that um, the bloodshed has to stop. Huberta von Voss-Wittig, wife of Germany's UN ambassador, says Asma must insist on peace over violence. Peace has to come along, and it might be a risk for her, but thousands of Syrian women are taking risks every day since a year. But Asma al-Assad may not be one to take those kinds of risks. Andrew Tabler, author of In the Lion's Den, an eyewitness account of Washington's battle with Syria, says Asma is a stand-by-her-man kind of woman. It would be significant, though, if she did leave Syria or if she somehow broke with her husband. It would be a real shot in the arm to the Syrian people, but uh, I don't expect it anytime soon. But don't knock the ambassador's wives for trying, says Joshua Landis. He's director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He says the video is part of a wider public relations battle to get the West, especially the U.S., to act against the al-Assad regime. If you want to overthrow the regime, you know, in democracies, you need to mobilize public opinion. And today, most Americans don't want to get involved in Syria, according to opinion polls. And I think the politicians are sensitive to that. One of the potential roadblocks, should Asma decide to renounce her husband's regime, is where she'd go. Besides the EU ban, Britain has made clear she's not welcome there either, even though she's a British citizen. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter. You can see the video of the wives of the UN ambassadors urging Asma al-Assad to take a stand. It's at theworld.org. The King of Spain has found himself the target of a lot of criticism in recent days. That's because he was found to be hiding something from his subjects. The 74-year-old monarch fell ill last week while he was on a secret hunting trip to Botswana. He'd reportedly been hunting elephants. King Juan Carlos left a Madrid hospital today. He had a new hip and an apology. But the apology comes too late to restore the monarch's previously untarnished reputation. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Barcelona. This was Spain's king today, addressing his people for the first time since his fall. I'm feeling better, he said, walking unassisted from his hospital room, and I'm hoping to assume my duties again. And he said, looking contrite, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. It won't happen again. The king was referring to his Botswana junket, paid for by a wealthy Saudi national who lives in Spain. But Juan Carlos didn't say what he was sorry for exactly whether for going on the trip to begin with or for hunting elephants in particular. He's come under fire for both. This is a video of the king's Botswana hunting guide shooting a huge elephant from point-blank range. 
The guide's picture alongside the king and a different dead elephant has been all over the Spanish press this week. Yesterday, the board of the World Wildlife Fund in Spain voted unanimously to strip the king of his title as honorary president. Though the Botswana hunt was legal, the WWF said killing elephants goes against its principles. The uproar has also become political. Union leaders and left-wing politicians have been taking shots at the king all week. Cayo Lara of Spain's United Left Party said he doubted the king has been losing much sleep over the fact that thousands of young Spaniards are without work during this crisis. How could he, he said, if he's flying off to Africa to hunt elephants? Just last Christmas, the king gave a speech calling on citizens to act responsibly as the economic crisis deepened, and people listened. The king is generally well-respected, his most famous TV address during an attempted coup in 1981 is credited with saving Spain's fledgling democracy. But since his Christmas speech last December, things in Spain have only gotten worse. The country has just entered recession. More than one out of two Spaniards under 24 lacks jobs. And the government's borrowing costs have been steadily rising. The king's own crisis may abate more quickly now that he's said sorry. Until then, he'll likely lay low with family, including his 13-year-old grandson, Philippe. Philippe accidentally shot himself in the foot with a hunting rifle on Monday, while the king was still recovering in the hospital from his own hunting accident. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Scientists hope to find genetic similarities between humans and animals, and they are crowdsourcing the problem by turning the search for matching DNA patterns into a computer game. We're going to take a turn playing tomorrow on The World. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There are many names for God. The idea is the same around the globe, though, a higher power overseeing humanity. Researchers at the University of Chicago were more interested in the depth of belief in God in different countries. A new report gauges that depth based on data collected through surveys in 30 nations, almost all of them with Christian traditions. Tom Smith is the report's author. Belief is strongest in developing countries as opposed to the most developed countries. In our case, the country with the highest uh, level of belief in God and the lowest level of uh, atheism was the Philippines. And what accounts for that? You have several things going that leads to a very high level of belief in the Philippines. First, as I said, in general, developing countries have a higher level of belief. Second of all, among Christian countries, Catholic countries have a higher level of belief than Protestant countries. And of course, the Philippines is predominantly Catholic. And third, religion has a very strong emotional content. It's not just an institution in the Philippines. This is really something that's a very vital part of people's everyday lives. So just to go back for one second, did you say there that the higher the level of poverty, the greater the need, generally speaking, the greater the belief in God? One of the explanations for why developing countries have higher belief in religion in general and God in particular is that the people in those countries have a lot of everyday stresses and threats to their material survival and that they find religion as something that helps them get through 
the material challenges. But then how does that explain the belief in God here in the United States? You say in the Philippines, which you just mentioned, 94% of those people surveyed say they have always believed in God. In the United States, 81%, that's basically second in line, 81% said that they did. You could hardly count the U.S. as a developing country. Yes. uh, This is an example of what is sometimes called American exceptionalism. The United States has a very high level of belief for our country as economically advanced with as high as level of of education as the United States has. It goes back to the founding of the United States in which we have the separation of church and state. At first glance, one would say, well, it doesn't that weaken religion if the government isn't staying behind religion. What it does is it frees religion and it can either succeed and compete or it can compete and fail. And what has happened in the United States is you have a very active, highly competitive religious market. And that competition has strengthened religion in the United States. What did you find through the study about atheism? Well, there are two uh, areas of the world in which either atheism as a kind of adopted point of view or simply the lack of religion, uh, the, the lack of any belief, is particularly strong in some of but not all of the ex-communist countries, the prime example being the former East Germany, and in the Scandinavian countries. One final question. What does this tell you? And what kind of knock-on effect do you think that this has from foreign policy to social issues? What do you see as the value in a study like this? I think it's very important to take and understand Religion in general, religion as as we see is a very powerful force in the world today, political force as well as a moral force. And belief in God, of course, is central to understanding religions. That is Tom Smith, who's a director at the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago and author of the study Beliefs About God Across Time and Countries. The British Empire once stretched across times and countries, and in the far-flung outposts of Britannia, there were many diplomatic files of a sensitive nature. Now, when the empire waned, thousands of those secret files returned to Britain, and now the first batch of the files, dating from the 1930s to the 70s, has been made public. The BBC's Sancha Berg has been looking at them. These files were sent back from the colonies as the British Empire was ending, These were files which contained material that was going to embarrass the British government if it was left behind. So this material was kept secret for decades and its existence was only admitted last year when a group of very elderly Kenyans brought a suit against the British government. They said they'd been beaten, tortured, castrated by British forces and their lawyers pushed to get these files out. So that's what the files are. Many of the files are quite revealing. I wonder if you could start off with one of the files that you looked at that pertains to President Barack Obama's father. Well, this is a curious file because there is a file on Kenyan students studying in the United States in the late 1950s because Kenyan politicians had arranged a kind of airlift of around 80 Kenyan students so that they could come study at American universities. And I looked at that and I thought, hmm, It's just about possible that this might cover Barack Obama Sr. So open the file, had a look, there he is. President Obama's father was amongst that group. And the British officials were concerned about this group 
that they might be used for anti-colonial, anti-British publicity. And they talked to the State Department about them. And the State Department were also concerned about these Kenyan students. They said that Kenyan students in the US tended to fall into the wrong hands and had a reputation for being anti-white and anti-American. Now, that's just the State Department view. There is absolutely nothing in the file to suggest that any individual student held those views at all. But uh, between them, the British officials at the British Embassy in Washington and the US State Department agree they're going to try and exert influence on these Kenyans while they're in the US. So that's one of the files. So there's no uh, aspersion cast in the file against President Obama's father, a Kenyan, studying in the United States himself personally, but his name was listed among those in the files because he was studying here. There's another pretty fascinating part of these records that relates to Diego Garcia. This is the site of the enormous, strategically important U.S. air base in the Indian Ocean. What did you see in these British diplomatic files that's revelatory there? The British government came to a secret agreement with the US in 1965 to lease the island of Diego Garcia to the US for 50 years for use as an airbase. And the British let the Americans understand that there wasn't really a settled population on the island. If there had been permanent settled people, then they would have had rights under the UN Charter. But The British had told the Americans there were no people like that, they were just migrant workers, when in fact these files show they knew full well that there were some islanders who'd been settled there with their families for generations. So what these files show is how British officials planned to mislead Parliament, the United Nations, about the status of these islanders. So what's written about this? Well, one of the things that's really interesting is the way in which the British officials talk about the islanders. And there's one thing which is really jarring, which is when in 1971, a senior British official went to the islands in person to tell the islanders that they would have to leave their homes. And some of the islanders say, could they have some compensation for leaving their own country? And he writes, I played this into touch which is like a sporting term for batting it away, almost as though it's a bit of a game. So as I say, that's quite a jarring tone, and you do get that elsewhere in the files. And while it's quite early days to say what exactly is going to come out of these files, if you wanted me to characterise it, I would say it is the guilty secrets of the end of the British Empire. The BBC's Sancha Berg in London. Thank you. Thank you. Got a first-hand account of a surprise U.S. air raid on Japan 70 years ago today. That's still to come on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, more than a year after the revolution in Tunisia, the country's news outlets are adjusting to new freedoms, and they're clearly breaking with the past. The fact that we're not journalists helped a lot, because every journalist who was trained in Tunisia was perceived as a a propaganda machine. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, Searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Sudan's president gave an ominous speech today. Omar al-Bashir said the people of South Sudan must be liberated from their own government. 
These are fighting words. They come just eight months after South Sudan declared its independence from Sudan. The two neighbors have been fighting. The latest flare-up, a firefight near the border, which left 22 soldiers dead. That was near the oil town of Hejlej, just north of the border. The BBC's James Copnell is in Sudan's capital, which is in the north, Khartoum. He says at the heart of the dispute, oil and a border that is still not fully defined. When South Sudan broke away, it took with it three quarters of the oil production, something like 350,000 barrels of oil a day in South Sudan. And that was a massive part of Sudan's budget, obviously. But the infrastructure, the pipelines, the refineries, the export terminal are all in Sudan. So South Sudan, in a way, relied on Sudan to export its oil. And they couldn't agree how much South Sudan should pay for this. There was a big, big row, and then Sudan stopped letting the South Sudanese export its oil. It started confiscating some of that South Sudanese oil in lieu of payment, and that was seen as theft by the South Sudanese. And they stopped their oil production, which is 98% of their own revenue. And that, I think, was really the start of the current crisis. Now, there have been little clashes along the border at various points since separation. But just over a week ago, it seems as though the Sudanese struck first and the South Sudanese responded and pushed all the way into the Hejlij oil field and took control. And that was really a step too far for the Sudanese. So the bulk of the fighting is over oil. Specifically, where is the fighting going on right now and who's it involving? It's quite a messy picture, to be honest. What we think is that the front line, as it were, is about 20 kilometres north of those oil fields in Hejlij, and that's where the South Sudanese troops have advanced to. The Sudanese army is trying militarily to repel them. But it also seems as if both sides are making use of proxy forces. They both deny it, but both are accused, and I think quite credibly, of supporting uh, proxy groups. So there are South Sudanese militias who are attacking in various places near the border within South Sudan. And there are also rebel groups in southern Kordofan and Blue Nile in particular. Those are Sudanese states, but near the border. And those rebels are allegedly supported by South Sudan. So some of these forces, and even rebels from Darfur, a separate civil war, may be involved on the South Sudanese side. So it's a messy picture all along the border, but the bulk of the tension and the fighting is concentrated on the Hedgelige oil fields and just to the north of this. Can you bring the international community into this and, and what kind of um, political muscle is being expended and whether or not it's it's taking any effect? I mean, Washington itself, the United States, has put a lot of its investments, a lot of interest in what has been going on in Sudan, specifically with regard to South Sudan. Does Washington have much of a voice right now? And uh, and internationally, is there much pressure uh, for these many, many conflicts to be resolved? Yeah, I think there is a concerted international effort. Certainly the United Nations are discussing possible sanctions uh, for both countries if the fighting doesn't stop. The African Union has spoken out strongly on this issue. America's position is interesting too, because traditionally over the last few years, uh, the U.S. has been on very bad terms with Khartoum because of the problems in South Sudan over many years, because also of Sudan's support at one point for Osama bin Laden, who used to live 
in Sudan in the 1990s and of course because of the uh, war in Darfur that broke out in 2003, the civil war. However, I think there's a change in America's position in the last few days really. I think they've been more open to Khartoum's position and more critical in any case of South Sudan's position, particularly because of this occupation of the oil fields in Hejlij. Usually Khartoum feels it's not liked by the international community and Juba basks in the warm glow of support from Washington and elsewhere in the Western world. Well, that's been reversed a little bit over the last few days. And the Sudanese are now appealing to the UN and international bodies to make sure South Sudan leaves the Hedgelege oil fields. It's an unusual position for Khartoum to be on good terms with the UN, but that's the direction these things are moving over these latest events. One more question. Does it seem as if Sudan is now, with these various conflicts, closer to an all-out war, south and north? Yes, without a doubt. I think in some ways they've been at war for a few months, if if one believes the allegations of support for proxy militias and rebel groups and so on, and there have been odd clashes along the border, but nothing like what we've seen in the last week or so. Uh, the Sudanese air force bombing various places in South Sudan and South Sudanese troops in control of a key oil field. It's a war that's been contained, and that's why maybe one wouldn't say it was an all-out war, but we're so close to an all-out war that it's, it's almost that already. The BBC's James Copnell, BBC correspondent in Sudan and South Sudan, speaking to us from Khartoum. Thank you, James. Thank you. The revolutions that are now collectively known as the Arab Spring began in Tunisia. It was the first country where unprecedented street protests led to the fall of a longtime ruler. President Zine al Abidin Ben Ali was toppled in January last year. But the protests continued as Tunisia searched for a new way forward. As things turned out, the current authorities banned protests on one of Tunisia's most symbolic streets in the capital. Merchants along Habib Bourguiba Avenue in Tunis had complained that they were losing too much business because of all the demonstrations. Well, more protests followed anyway. Some of them turned violent. The ban was eventually lifted, and today a demonstration of sorts was held on Habib Bourguiba Avenue. People literally sat in the street and read books. Local journalist Ahmed Medien was there earlier today. I can say at least 400 people because Avenue Habibogiba is really long. And uh, from what I'm standing now, there's at least 100 people in front of me. People are reading books in French and Arabic. I saw people reading poetry in Arabic. I saw people reading fiction in uh, French novels. There are other people even reading their school textbooks. You said they're reading school textbooks or they're doing homework? Yeah, what is the point of, of these demonstrators reading books, be they poetry or textbooks, uh, sitting in the street there? From uh, my conversation with the organizers of the event, they wanted to show a picture of Tunisia where Tunisians do not only protest or join in demonstration against the government, but they also join in a cultural event, which adds a reading book from the street. So they wanted to portray a picture which is a different from the, the picture that uh, Westerners have been seeing about Tunisia, which is merely about protestations and uh, demonstrations. Uh, so they say they want Tunisians not to be known just as, as protesters, political protesters, but also to um, show yeah. the cultural side through demonstrations such as these. Yeah. And on this avenue where police have been so many times for protests, any sign of police today for this demonstration? There's a little presence of the police in the street today, which is... A bit surprising, given that in the past months we had a, a heavy police presence. 
That was Tunisian journalist Ahmed Medien speaking to us earlier today from Tunis. You can see photos of the people reading books today along Habib Bourguiba Avenue in Tunis. We've got them at theworld.org. Many things have changed in Tunisia since the revolution. For instance, there's a lot more media freedom in the country now. An example of that is an English-language news website that's pushing the boundaries of Tunisia's new, more open society. Ben Gilbert has our story. Ziad Mahersi is a busy guy. The day I met this physician and public health specialist turned journalist, he had spent his morning working on health policy issues. Around noon, he drove his business partner to the airport for a trip to Libya with Al Jazeera English. By 1 p.m., he was at his online startup news organization called Tunisia Live. He says everyone here has just as diverse a background as he does because you couldn't be a journalist before without being a regime stooge. The fact that we're not journalists helped a lot because every journalist uh, who was trained in Tunisia after the revolution was perceived as a, a propaganda machine, as somebody who was the product of the old system, who was training journalists in really uh, not in a very uh, objective and independent way. That's all changed. Post-revolution Tunisia has seen an explosion of new media. At least a dozen new newspapers have launched since the end of Ben Ali's reign, and new radio stations and television stations have applied for licenses. Tunisia Live is unique in that it's the only English-language news organization to launch in a country where most of the population of 10 million speaks French or Arabic. You've got quite a, a variety of people here, all from different backgrounds. Yeah, that, that's the point. I mean, everyone who tweets in English in Tunisia is called to for an interview uh, in Tunisia Live. Everyone who starts a blog in English is also invited uh, to contribute. Mahirsi studied in the U.S. on a Fulbright in 2006. He returned home and was one of the few activists who blogged in English both before and during the Tunisian uprising. As Western news organizations arrived to cover the rebellion, he saw that big media organizations didn't know much about Tunisia. He started appearing as an analyst on TV and radio networks and began working as a translator and a fixer for journalists. After the revolution, he and his partners decided to start up a business that would serve both foreign journalists and generate news in English. And we reinvest all the money we make uh, into uh, Tunisia Live, into training uh, young people, and uh, we train them on how to become a journalist. Uh, they also contribute uh, by fixing for these journalists. They, they learn, they get the opportunity to learn from world-class journalists the way news works. 23-year-old Farah Samti is one of Tunisia Live staffers. She's getting a master's degree in linguistics, but wanted to try journalism. Honestly, it's something new. I was never into politics before, to be honest. But then the revolution happened, things changed, everyone became more interested. And it's such an amazing experience because you get to be well-informed, uh, you get to interview important politicians, etc. It's really interesting. It's a great way to start a career. For many here, English is a third language. So Mahirsi brought in several native speakers to serve as editors. One of them is Wafa Ben Hassin, a Tunisian-American who grew up in the U.S. but spent a lot of time visiting family back in Tunisia. She says it's incredible to see how Tunisians can now express themselves without the fear of arrest or worse. For example, I, me and my sister, we used to always... Uh, you know, discuss politics more openly when we came to Tunisia and our family would be like, shh, 
you know, don't say that too loud. Like you don't want people to hear you. But now, you know, it's it's crazy how how the attitudes have changed. How, I mean, you could tell people are so happy to just you know freely and openly discuss. It's um it's really really something for me. In the past, the second you start to voice any type of criticism, you know, um, you'd be sure to have somebody you know either following you or like. You know, you, you'd be worried. But Mahirsi says getting some Tunisians to overcome that mindset of fear established during Ben Ali's reign isn't easy. It's overwhelming huh? for writers who grew up, as you said, under the dictatorship. We're not, uh, we don't have the culture. You know, uh, the, the revolution happened suddenly for them. They were not prepared for it. Um, so they, it's not that they are able to write great articles and then they were censored, no. <laughs> the, the only thing they know is to write like the propaganda articles we have. So there is a learning curve about how to report objectively and independently, uh, how to write a proper article. But how to write a proper article isn't the only problem for Tunisia's media. Reporters at the Tunisian Center for Freedom of the Press say journalists face intimidation from security forces, politicians' bodyguards, and the militias of newly empowered Salafist Islamists. To make matters worse, journalists say the newly elected Tunisian government selected former state media journalists to head the official state media. Another problem, Mahirsi says, is that there are few news organizations outside of Tunis, Tunisia's capital. And that's a big, big threat to uh, democracy, uh, I feel, because the, 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 the media is supposed to be the interface between the people and the decision makers. And if there is no local media, the information does not uh, go all the way up to the decision makers. And, and we ended up not respond. We end up not responding to the people's needs and the real problems. So I, I still believe that uh, it's work in progress. Uh, that the media in Tunisia has a long way to go. Journalists in Tunisia say the government must do more to protect freedom of speech and expression and members of the press. They say the ability of Tunisia's new press to criticize the government without retribution will be a key indicator of the commitment the new government in Tunisia has to democracy. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert, Tunis, Tunisia. Our GeoQuiz today takes us to the western Pacific Ocean. It's where 70 years ago today, the Doolittle Raid got underway. The surprise U.S. air attack on Japan was launched from the USS Hornet, as described in this newsreel. Launching fully loaded medium bombers had never been done before. When the decks of the flagship were cleared, Admiral Halsey signaled to Colonel Doolittle and his gallant command, good luck. The bombers headed for the island of Honshu. Their mission, attack military targets in Japan's capital and four other cities. Your mission, name any of the Japanese cities that came under attack on this day in 1942. The answers and some recollections from a Doolittle Raider are coming up.
musical tribute to a Palestinian poet coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. We asked you to name some Japanese cities in our geo-quiz today. They were targeted by the Doolittle Raid. That was a World War II mission that took place 70 years ago today. You get the answers now in this report from the world's David Lavalley. Right from the start, the April 1942 Doolittle Raid was a risky surprise attack operation. U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle led the mission. The plan was to hit Japanese military targets in and around Tokyo, this in retaliation for the attack on Pearl Harbor four months earlier. The raid began at dawn, 600 miles off the coast of Japan in the western Pacific. Sixteen B-25 bombers loaded with bombs launched from the deck of the USS Hornet. Everybody got off the aircraft carrier good and no problem. This is U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Edward Saylor speaking to the BBC. He's one of 80 crew members who took part in the Doolittle Raid. The Japanese were not expecting us so soon. That's why we got away with it, uh, dropped our bombs and headed for China. The raid was intended to show that Japan was vulnerable to American air attack and to boost American war morale, and it was captured in newsreel. At 12.15, the attack was opened by Doolittle, who dove in before he unloaded his incendiaries upon the Japanese capital. The B-25 bombers targeted sites in Tokyo, Kobe, Nagoya, Yokosuka, and Yokohama. Lieutenant Colonel Saylor remembers the mission went flawlessly. Everything went pretty well. We went and bombed our targets. On my ship, we bombed the town of Kobe, made our way over to China, ran out of gas about the time we hit the coast. That meant the U.S. pilots had to make a tricky water landing. Landed in the China Sea about a half mile or so from an island, skipped along the waves and came to rest and floated for 10 minutes while we got out of there. Once on land, Sailor praises the Chinese for their help, especially a 15-year-old boy who came forward. He spoke a little bit of English. He became our interpreter, our navigator, and our food scrounger. And that boy stayed with us all the way. We owed him a lot. And after the mission, never could find him. To this day, I don't know what happened to him. The Chinese who assisted the U.S. airmen paid a high price in the months to come. Some estimate the Japanese army killed a quarter million Chinese civilians in retaliation for providing support to the Doolittle Raiders. That part of the story bothers Sailor. When I heard about that, I had to kind of wonder if it had been worthwhile. Well, that's a pretty sad thing for us to cause that many people to have to die, you know. That was a sad bit of information for me, and it kind of still is. But that's the way it happened anyway. Lieutenant Colonel Sailor is one of five surviving members of the Doolittle Raid, and at 92, he still remembers. I still think it was amazing, but I'm not sure how we got away with it. I know we had a lot of luck. Lucky or not, the 1942 Doolittle Raid was said to have inflicted minor damage to Japan, but it was an omen of the more destructive atomic bomb attacks that followed before the war's end. For The World, I'm David Lavalley. And finally today, Lebanese composer and oud player Marcel Khalife has a newly released album here in the U.S. It pays homage to the late Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. The two men were friends. Bruce Wallace has their story. Marcel Khalife's song, Now in Exile, draws inspiration from the Mahmoud Darwish poem of the same name. <laughs> 
considers life and death from the vantage point of 60 years. That's how old Darwish was when he wrote it. The poem begins, now, in exile, yes, at home. At 60, in a fleeting life, they are lighting candles for you. So rejoice as calmly as you are able, because death is strayed and missed you in the crowds. He put off his visit. When the poem was published in 2001, Khalife, who was in his early 50s at the time, talked to Darwish about composing a piece based on it. And he said, why write it now? You're still young. Wait till you get to be 60 and then you can write the music to this poem. Khalife took the poet's advice. The sad thing is, when I wrote the song once I turned 60, Mahmoud didn't get to hear it because he had already passed away. Darwish died in 2008. He'd only heard two of the 18 songs on Khalife's album, Fall of the Moon. Darwish published his first poem in 1960, but Khalife didn't discover his writing until the late 70s. He'd just finished music conservatory in Beirut, and Lebanon's civil war was beginning. The fighting kept him confined to his home, and he happened upon one of Darwish's books. I felt like these poems were written for me, like they were handed to me. In one poem, he speaks of his mother's bread. I felt like he was talking about my mother. When he talks about his passport, I feel like it's my picture in the passport. The two met in the early 80s and quickly formed a close working and personal bond. A few songs they've collaborated on have become anthems in the Arab world, like this one called Passport. It's words wrestle with the complexities of identity and nationality. The politics of both artists have irked various governments and caused concert promoters in the U.S. and elsewhere to cancel shows. But Darwish reminded readers that a lot of his works were deeply personal, even apolitical. In a 2001 interview with the New York Times, he said, When I write a poem about my mother, Palestinians think my mother is a symbol for Palestine, but I write as a poet, and my mother is my mother. She's not a symbol. Khalife makes a similar point. His U.S. tour is billed as an homage both to Darwish and to the spirit of the Arab Spring. I asked him if, as an artist, he saw a role for himself in these popular movements. He said that while his heart is with the demonstrators, his music comes from somewhere else. Creativity and art typically tell their own unique stories. The inspiration may come from life itself, but it's not a mirror on life. Creativity may be searching for a different meaning, maybe something deeper than what's actually happening. Much of the art on the new album feels like it's searching for these different meanings. This is one of a number of instrumental pieces Khalife has written based on Darwish poems. It's called The Stranger's Bed. The song's title comes from a collection of Darwish's love poetry. Khalife said it's personal and everyday themes like this that he builds all of his work on. We've been through many wars, yet kids went to school, people went to work, people had their own affairs, they loved. I cannot separate the personal from the public. I cannot stop from telling a story of love if there is war. And so, with Mahmoud Darwish's help, he keeps telling that story. 
World. I'm Bruce Wallace. Marcel Khalife is taking his musical tribute to Mahmoud Darwish on the road. He starts a two-week U.S. tour on Friday in Houston. See if Khalife is heading your way at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org. And the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI Public Radio International.